You are now listening to the April 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Starting two weeks ago, we have been sharing the story of Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah. Today, we're going to talk about how Hezekiah got tangled up with Assyria, a powerful nation at the time. The details are recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 to chapter 19, verse 37, and 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 to 23. Also, Isaiah chapters 36 and 37 record the accounts of the same story. It will be helpful if you read these passages on your own to better understand Hezekiah. Last time, we talked about how Sennacherib, king of Assyria, besieged Jerusalem. We also said that, although Hezekiah had been living faithfully by listening to God, Once the attack by Sennacherib became intimate, Hezekiah forgot about God and tried to resolve the situation on his own. Since he began reigning in Judah, Hezekiah had not paid tribute to the king of Assyria. That is, until Assyria came and besieged Jerusalem. His act of defying Assyria was completely opposite from what his father Ahaz had done. Ahaz was intent on appeasing the king of Assyria. Ahaz went as far as stripping the Lord's altar, worshipping the idols of Assyria, and giving tribute to the king of Assyria. So, to Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Hezekiah had become a thorn in his side. Sennacherib had to feel disrespected and therefore compelled to mobilize his troops to teach Hezekiah a lesson. In the fourteenth year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came with a large army and seized all of Judah in short order. The only city left was Jerusalem. When Hezekiah witnessed such a strong show of power, he became very fearful. In haste, he subjugated himself to Sennacherib by acknowledging that he had betrayed Assyria, thereby committing the sin of not giving tribute. He then promised to offer the king of Assyria whatever he would ask for, even though he governed Judah by following God's word until then. When his life was in danger, Hezekiah made decisions and acted on his own instead of turning to God for counseling. To give tribute, Sennacherib demanded Hezekiah had to scrape off the gold from the door of the house of the Lord and peel all the gold that was overlaid on the pillars in the house of the Lord. Hezekiah thought Sennacherib would go back to his own country once he received the tribute. But the king of Assyria did not do that. In actuality, Assyria was already receiving tributes from many countries, and the real reason for besieging Jerusalem was not for the tribute. Assyria 
annexed many neighboring countries into their colonies, and their kings became Assyrians. So Sennacherib's purpose was to also colonize Judah and bring down Hezekiah from the throne. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, stayed in Lachish that he had occupied before Jerusalem. From there, he sent his army officers to march toward Jerusalem and ordered them to attack Hezekiah. The fact that Sennacherib did not go to Jerusalem himself to strike Hezekiah likely meant Sennacherib looked down on Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He thought this particular battle was not worth getting involved himself. On Sennacherib's order, Rabshakeh, his general, came to Jerusalem. Fully ready to attack, he imposed on Jerusalem the question on whose authority they stopped giving tribute to Assyria and committed treason. He began insulting Hezekiah and the God he served. Rabshakeh chided that God of Israel would be powerless to save them from his mighty Assyrian army. Rabshakeh even added that the God of Judah sent him to strike Jerusalem. Rabshakeh declared that no God in the world could save Jerusalem from their hands. Upon hearing that, Hezekiah tore his clothes. He covered himself with sockcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He had priests to wear sockcloth as well. Then Hezekiah sent them to prophet Isaiah and told them, to deliver this message. These are the verses 3 and 4 in 2 Kings chapter 19. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. After receiving Hezekiah's message, Isaiah sent the reply to Hezekiah. Following is taken from 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. About the same time, Hezekiah got a letter from Sennacherib. The letter said, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. Did the God of those nations, which my fathers destroyed, deliver them? God told Hezekiah not to fear the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria told Hezekiah, not to trust God. Then Hezekiah made the right decision to listen to God rather than the king of Assyria. Hezekiah took the letter and went up to the Lord and spread it out before the Lord and prayed. 
Here are the verses 15 to 19 from 2 Kings chapter 19. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, I pray deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. After Hezekiah prayed to God, God sent prophet Isaiah to assure Hezekiah that God heard his prayer, and God promised that he would protect and save Jerusalem. Then that very night, God sent the angel of the Lord and struck 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and they were all dead. So, Sennacherib king of Assyria evacuated from Judah and went back to Nineveh, just as God had said. Subsequent to that, Sennacherib was killed by his sons with a sword while he was worshiping his idols in a ceremony. All the promises God had made and the word of God were fulfilled. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week. Oh
sins away. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the light of the world. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And this morning as we're looking at our text, it just so happens that there's one of these major parties that God commands that stands at the backdrop of this scene that we find. So if you look at John 8, 12, you'll notice that it begins with this word again. And that word again is actually pointing us back to something that's happened before. And I'm just going to save you the time of research and, and let you know that it actually points back to 737. 737, uh, we find that Jesus is showing up during uh, this thing they call the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it's such a big party that sometimes they just call it the Feast for, sure, for short. And everybody knows what they're talking about. Well, this feast is actually a feast that God called his people to celebrate every year. You can find this in Leviticus 23, where you'll find that God commanded all of Israel on this time during the year to pilgrimage to Jerusalem after the harvest, after they got the olives and the grapes in, after they had seen the abundance of God's goodness. Uh, it was then that they were to have a seven-day party, seven days, like this some of you are like, man, I've never had a party like this. This is good. But in this party, it was kind of like a camping trip because they would build these booths and they were built with sort of palm leaves on top so that maybe you could even like sort of see the, the moon and stars at nights. And God was doing this because he wanted to remind them of where they had come from. You know, this party was really to remind them of the days of their wilderness wanderings, where that fiery cloud led them by night through the wilderness. And, and this celebration was so that they would be reminded every year of how God redeemed them out of Egypt and provided for them while they were in that wilderness. See, God did not want Israel to allow prosperity to cause them to forget the God who redeemed them out of slavery and led them through the darkness by the light of his presence with them. He said, you need to remember that, and a party is a great way to establish it. But what did the light signify in the days of Jesus as he was acknowledging and observing this festival? Well, think about it. These are the booze that were in the wilderness, and they're around this great light that represented that cloud, that fiery cloud of the presence of God that led them, that was full of God's Shekinah glory. And so as they lit up these lamps, it was reminding them of the presence of God that led them. See, God's people followed God's presence, and he saved and protected them in the darkness of the wilderness. 
It represented this light, God's presence and salvation for God's people. So Jesus stood in the temple as the Feast of Booze was ending. And that last candelabra was beginning to burn out, which gave light over all of Jerusalem. And as that light faded and dimmed, Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a pretty big statement. We just had a big party. Jerusalem was pretty well lit. And now this guy's coming in and saying he's light of not just Jerusalem, but the world. Now the big idea this morning is that Israel's glory cloud looks dim next to our radiant Christ. Israel's glory cloud looks dim next to our radiant Christ. We're going to unpack that. First, we'll see that Jesus fulfills with the light of the Feast of Booze anticipated. Now, just in case you're wondering, we're actually just going to be circling around 8-12 this whole time. That one verse. I know we read a lot. It gave us context. But we want to really just meditate on 8-12. Okay, first, Jesus fulfills with the light of the Feast of Booze anticipated. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about light all kinds of things, and I believe that we might see a number of things at play here. Uh, You'll notice that light is is something that is, uh, one, present at creation. So God spoke physical light into being in the first creation in Genesis 1. God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light, and he had a separation between the light and the darkness. And here light seems to be signaling a new creation. Breaking out with the arrival of Christ. See, when God led Israel out of bondage to Egypt, he saved and redeemed them from physical slavery and made a covenant with them promising, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And that pillar of fire by night led ethnic Israel through the wilderness. It signaled a kind of new creation for this people. Well, John 1, 4 to 5 seems to pick up on this connection of light to creation. If you were looking in John 1, you'll remember that it begins with the eternal word taking on flesh. But, but notice that as 1, 4 to 5, John 1 to 4 to 5 picks up on this connection of light to creation. Because after saying all the things were created by the word, it says, and in him, this word, was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But we also see, not only that it, it seems to have a creative element, new creative element to it, that it, it signals Jesus saying, I am the light, that he is the ultimate light. Now, what I mean by this is that Jesus is the light that we've been waiting for. He is the light that everybody ultimately needs. John 1 9 says, The true light, which gives light to light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light. See, Jesus is the true light in the sense that he is the real or genuine light as opposed to a lie or something that's false. But as John Carson notes, this word also carries a sense of ultimate light. Not just true as opposed to false, but it's the ultimate light. So for instance, if you were to flip over to John 5 and look at verses 35 to 36, you'll notice that Jesus says, hey, John the Baptist 
He, he was the light. In fact, he calls him there a burning and shining lamp. And he says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, speaking to these Jews, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, I am the light. John was a lamp. And as the last candelabra of the Feast of Booze, which lit up all of Jerusalem, dimmed, Jesus came saying, I am the light of the world. And don't miss this. This light is not like John's lamp or the candelabra of the Feast of Booze or even the glory cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. These lights led Israel, but they only prepared the way for the greater light, the ultimate light that would give light to the whole world, Jesus Christ. There's a third kind of aspect to this light. There's a sense that we'll find throughout in John and elsewhere that this light speaks of a kind of moral uprightness. You know, there's a sense in which Jesus Jesus is the light. In this sense, he is perfectly righteous, obeying God in every way. And as we'll see, darkness represents that place of sin and death and slavery. It's where the devil reigns. In fact, obedience to God is actually a a kind of restoration of how humanity was to operate. We were to image God. We were made after his likeness and in his image. And here Jesus so obeys God's law that to look at Jesus is to actually get a glimpse at the Father himself. Which leads to one last aspect of Jesus as light. And that is Jesus is God. You'll remember that the flaming cloud represented the presence and protection of God with and for his people. And Jesus says, I I am the light. Now, that's not exactly him saying, I am God. But John, you'll remember, he says in 1 John 1, 5, also written by this John, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, God is light. Now, this light speaks of the purity of God's perfections. See, light often represents God's presence. You'll remember that he appeared to Moses in what? A burning bush. Uh, you'll remember that he, he led, again, the people of Israel uh, out of, uh, in the wilderness through this blazing cloud. But Jesus says, I am the light. Now, to look at my light is to see the light of the Father. Now, he says this a lot more clearly if you scan down to John 8, 48 to 59. You'll notice that it's really interesting in this book. He's talking, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he immediately, verse 13, enters into a debate about the nature of like his paternity, right? Like, who's your daddy? Well, I know who your daddy is. You don't know who my daddy is. And you know what? Your daddy's a dirty guy. Well, your daddy's the devil. I mean, like there's this whole debate between the Pharisees and Jesus about paternity. And you might think, like, what does that have to do with the conversation? Well, I think that what's going on between 8 and chapter 9 is he's clarifying the nature of what he means in these verses. And in verses 48 to 59, the Jews say that they are sons of Abraham and ask Jesus, do you think that you're better than Abraham? Because the way that you're talking, it sounds like you're actually exalting yourself above Abraham, Father Abraham, who is a huge deal to the people of Israel. And Jesus says in verse 58, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we've been talking about Jesus' I am statements with predicates like, I am the bread and I am the light. But this is one of those unique I am's in the New Testament, in John, where he says just simply, I am, period, maybe exclamation mark. And in fact, I I think this likely likely comes from a section of Isaiah in 43.13, where Yahweh himself says, yes, and from ancient of days, I am he. And I believe this is pointing us back to Exodus 3.14. Remember what happened there? That's where Moses, he comes before God, and God says, you're going to go and lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, okay, well, people are probably going to ask for like a name of the God that I'm representing, so what should I tell them? And he says, what? You tell them that I am sent you. Here we find that Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now we know that the Pharisees clearly understood this as blasphemy by Jesus and that he was claiming deity because what do they immediately try to do? Try to stone him. That's what you do when somebody blasphemes. There is no other light next to Jesus. I like what John Frame says, though, here, bringing us full circle. He says, just as Yahweh uses the divine name at the beginning of the first covenant with Moses, Jesus claims it as he comes to institute the new covenant, as he creates a new people. And Jesus is the saving presence of God with his people in an ultimate kind of way. See, Jesus doesn't merely say, I am a light. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, I don't have much time to to spend here. I wish I could, but I do want to just mention that it's important if you're new to Christianity that you understand the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the one with a unique kind of person such that he is one with the Father. There aren't many ways to the Father. There is one way, one light, Jesus Christ, who is the very image of the invisible God. Now, this is important. This is important. Uh, I have had conversations with uh, friends who are Hindu, and, and, and we've talked, and I've said, do you accept Jesus Christ? And they're like, absolutely. And then I asked them, do you see Jesus Christ as the only God, that there is none other than him? And they've told me very clearly, oh, no, there are millions of gods. Well, no, they they don't understand the uniqueness of the light of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can lead us in the way of life. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're new to this Christianity thing and you're wondering, like, what's the most important thing that I can take away this morning? It's this. There is none like Jesus. There is no hope but in Christ. And you don't need to leave here without fully trusting him with your life now and forever. But there's a second thing that we see here. He says, I am the light of the world. Doesn't just say I'm the light, but I am the light of the world. See, Jesus in this picture, it's interesting. You want to say that he shines like the sun. Do you see it? The the whole world is lit by, in this picture, uh, by the light of Christ. But, But that might lose the illustration because remember, he's compared to the glory cloud against the darkness of this world. But this life, if you think about this world, this world is dark. And I don't need to convince you of that. That's not just a biblical, like, truth. That's an experiential truth. If you you doubt it, just go watch the news. I mean, how many many 
pitfalls and how many sort of rocks hanging down do we have as we're just even sitting in our homes quarantined watching the news and, and seeing all kinds of, of discussions about COVID and does COVID really exist and, and, and everybody on the planet's going to die from COVID and you know it's all over the place and you're wondering like I don't even know if I can trust the news there's so much fake news and can I tell fake news from true news and then in the midst of that you, you find that like there, there are riots like people get out of their homes and they're rioting against one another why because we want more peace right and you're looking at the world and it feels almost it can feel like the world is like literally on fire right now and yet you're reminded that what john and what jesus said is true that the world is dark it is a dangerous place if not for god this place would be unthinkable but notice here that it's that world that Jesus stepped into as a great light. He said, I am the light of the world. Now, John usually speaks of the world not with an emphasis just on how big it is, but how bad it is. See, the world is dark. So when John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, it's not meant to excite us about the bigness of God's love for so big a thing as much as, I mean, that's true, but also to think of it in the sense of how such a good God so pure could love something as dark as the world. See, the human condition is bad. The earthly sphere in darkness is controlled by Satan. That's the world that Jesus came into as light. All of humanity, without regard to ethnicity and an emphasis on their sinfulness and rebellion against God, that's the hot mess, the dumpster fire that Jesus willingly came to step into to bring light. And with them, there is no light, it's darkness. See, this is our, our default setting as humans, darkness. Now, don't miss this. Our problem isn't merely that we are in darkness, according to the Gospel of John, but that we love darkness you hear me it's it's not just that you are in darkness but that darkness is in you apart from christ so if you look at john three nineteen, right after the famous john three sixteen, for god to love the world right he gave us his son keep on reading three nineteen. this is what it says and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I want you just to, to pause there for a second. Did you catch that? The world hates the light because they love the darkness and don't want their evil deeds to be exposed. Has anybody ever felt that? You, you know that you're in sin and, and you need to, to confess and you need to, to live in the light, but, but what does your heart naturally do in its flesh left to itself when your sin is exposed? You what? You run. You, you, you run. And here he says it's, it's because we actually love the sin. Now catch what that I think implies. It's that if you were to come into the light, it would help kill the sin. Do you see that? But when you're running, you're, you're sort of saving the sin through your running. It's a sin rescue mission. And the world may see Jesus with their physical eyes, but be spiritually blind and love where they are, destined to perish, hopeless, 
But catch this, verse 13. It might seem in verse 13 that it's taking a detour with this whole who's your daddy conversation. It's happening between Jesus and the Pharisees. But I think Jesus is clarifying something about the nature of the world all along the way. See, Israel thought that they were children of God by virtue of their being physical offspring of Abraham. But Jesus says, I see that not only are you children of Abraham, but that you want to kill me, the one whom the Father has sent. And in John 8, 43 to 44, Jesus says this, you cannot bear to hear my word because you are of of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, did, did you catch that? There's a lot there. We can't unpack it all. But notice for one, Jesus says, your physical daddy might be Abraham, but your spiritual daddy is the devil. Did you see that? Like you're, you're not just by virtue of your DNA and your genetics and your family, like in Christ. That's not how it works. Second, your, your desires are shaped by the devil's desires. That's what it means to be outside of Christ, that your will, your wants, they're not free. They're actually enslaved to Satan. And third, they can't bear to hear Jesus' word because they are not of God, which means that if you're of God, you love to hear the voice of Jesus. You love to hear the scriptures. See, that's why Jesus calls them slaves to sin in verse 34. You sin because you're a sinner. In other words, Jews are part of the darkness of this world. I mean, you see how Jews might be getting upset at this point, right? We're the children of God. We were under the cloud. Like, we're the children of the light. And yet he says, and yet you're rebels against God. And you need the greater light from heaven. See, they're staring at the light of the world. They see him face to face. Can you imagine? Jesus, the light of heaven, has come down. And they are staring him in the face. And they're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I just, I'm confused. Who's your dad again? Like, talk about missing the point. See, the Christ of the gospel preached the gospel to them, and they couldn't stand to hear it. Which I think speaks kind of to how spiritual sight works. It's through hearing. Can't stand to hear what you're saying. I see Jesus. I'll see Jesus on a cross, but I will not believe what he says to me. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is pictured here as a spiritual son whose light is far more pervasive than that of the glory cloud that led Israel. Remember? Like, remember those candelabras? They, man, it was amazing. All of Jerusalem was lit up, and Jesus comes and says, and I, I'm here to light the world. But not every person in the world comes to the light. See, we are sinners by default, born in sin, and sinners by nature and by choice. And Jesus says that apart from this light, we are slaves to darkness, and we want it. We want the darkness. It's not that we're enslaved and we're good people that just haven't been able to get off the chain because of our circumstances or our backgrounds. It is that we love sin. Just like buzzards, who choose roadkill over carrots, like all the time, we choose sin. I might choose roadkill over carrots too, but you get the point. I don't like carrots. But if you are a non-Christian, here's what that means. You're not a Christian just because that's how you identified yourself on a survey, because that's like the closest box that actually represents you. That's not what makes you a Christian. Like kind of Christian, like maybe more Christian than like Muslim, uh, but, but you know, and more than like, no, you're not Jehovah's Witness, but maybe that's in there, but I'm something like that. 
You're not a Christian because that's just how you have identified yourself on a survey. You're not just a a Christian children. Hear me. We got beautiful kids in here. Love them. We have beautiful kids. Just just want y'all to know, like we can get caught up in loving you and forget to mention this one fact. Hear me. You're not a Christian because your mom and dad are. You hear that? Not a Christian because mom and dad are. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ trusting that you're a sinner saved by grace. And if that doesn't make sense to you, let me encourage you to ask your mom and dad about that when you go home. If you don't love God's word, it might be that you are in a dark place or it could be because you haven't come to the light. You're not a Christian because you are American. You hear me? Like That does not make you Christian. Like, I'm American, of course I'm Christian. You're not a Christian because you voted Republican. Like, don't go together. Like, different things. You're not a Christian because you voted Democrat. Like, that's, that's just not it. So you must receive the light of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the true king. If you don't love his word, it could be that you are in a dark place, or it could be because you have not truly come to the true light. And you must put your faith in Jesus, who came to rescue you from sin and death and the hopeless darkness of this world that only ends in eternal punishment with Satan forever. Because Why? The darkness does not overcome the light. The light wins. Now don't miss this. Christians, do you know that the world is a dark place? But let me encourage you with a couple of verses just to keep in your heart during this time. John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and it will not. Second, 1 John 4, 4. I love this. Very pastoral. John says, little children. This is Christians. This is hope for Christians. You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have great hope in Christ. But there's a third thing that we see here. Did you notice those who follow Jesus have the light of life? Those in Jesus have the light of life. See, Israel followed that glory cloud through the darkness of the night, and God's presence and power were with and for them. And here Jesus says, but whoever follows me, new day, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now take note, Jesus here says, whoever follows me. Follow, following a way of life. Putting your faith in someone, but not just faith in the sense of like, yeah, I, I think if I had to choose, Jesus is a good guy. I like to associate with Jesus. Me and Jesus are homies. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about faith and a way of life, we're talking about belief to such a point that you actually are leaning your life into Christ with the decisions that you're making such that you look different because you follow Jesus. Catch this. If you follow Jesus and you look the same the day you began following him as the day before, then there is something that is not working about following Jesus. You you see this? You've got to follow Christ. I'm seeing people kind of nodding and like, I don't know what he just said. It's important that the truth of your relationship with Christ actually shapes and changes your life. See, I think here, following speaks of a way of life. It speaks of a people who listen to and obey the voice of Jesus. I think we see three realities wrapped up in this statement. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. First, Jesus, did you notice, is the focal point of God's new covenant community. Whoever follows what? Me. Jesus. You know, this isn't one of those verses that, like, we go and quote and tell people, like, 
hey, you know what the Bible says? Whoever follows me, right? Like will not be in darkness. Like follow Josh, not in darkness. That's not good exegesis. No, God's people must follow Jesus's voice. They must trust Jesus with their whole lives. Now catch this. This requires a new creation. You'll remember that the Jews are children of the devil according to Jesus. Now, why is that? It's because Jesus says they cannot bear to hear the words of Christ. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but God the father, he sent me. In other words, a love of God centers on following the light that God sent, Jesus. Jesus is the one sent from the Father. He is not like other messengers. He himself is the message. He is one with the one who has been sent to you. And following the light centers on hearing the words of this one. Verse 47, if you look down there, you'll notice it says this. Whoever is of God, catch that, of God, hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not what? Of God. Now don't miss this. Following Jesus at least means two things here according to 1 John 1.23. If you want to follow him, you'll notice verse 47, you need to be of God. If you do follow Jesus, here's what it looks like. 1 John 1.23, believing on the name of God's son, Jesus Christ. That's one. Like you, you can't love God can't be of God if you don't believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. No other way to be part of this new creation and of the light that has been rescued from the darkness. Believing that Jesus lived a, 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 a life of perfect light and died on the cross for a people enslaved to darkness, but was raised from the dead in glorious light that all who believe in him might be saved is the gospel that he sent to us in Christ. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't put your faith in that Christ, you need to do that right now. See, following also means not just putting your faith in the biblical Christ, but loving one another in John, in 1 John chapter 3. See, Jesus says that we should love God and love our neighbor, but I think loving one another here speaks of the community of lightlings. And when we preach the gospel of Christ, and when we display the power of the gospel in our lives, loving one another and going out to share the gospel with the nations, we are testifying to the truth of the light. There's a second thing we see in this last phrase. Those who follow Jesus will not walk in darkness. They will not walk in darkness. We will seek to live a life of submission to Jesus Christ and his voice if we are in the light. See, this darkness, light speaks of a morally upright kind of life Darkness speaks of sin and evil, the domain of the devil. In other words, we will not look like Satan any longer if we were in the light. Satan who lies and kills and rejects Jesus. It also means that our destiny is different when we follow Jesus out of this dark world. You, you might say, well, I'm a believer, and this morning I'm feeling like a lot of conviction and guilt because I've sinned. So like, is this saying that I should be perfect and I must not have done it right? I must not have put my faith in Jesus truly if I've sinned and I'm even struggling with sin. I want to repent right now. Like, am I far from God? What do I do? Well, again, we go back to 1 John 1, 9. 
Remember that, that section that talks about light? God is light, it begins with that. And in verse five, well, it ends in this. What if we sin? John 1, 9, it makes this promise to those living in the light when they sin. He says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is for those who are in Jesus. He's a, he's a light that's contagious, a light that's able to make dark people light again, whole again in Christ. He's our advocate with the Father when Christians sin. But notice third here. He says we will not walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. You'll remember John 1.4. We were told the life was the light of men. And here those who follow the light will have the light of life. I think this points to the the new birth of regeneration. Seeing Jesus, it isn't just physical. It's not just that you see him with your physical eyes. See, many saw Jesus physically and are blind to his identity. I mean, that's a theme that you see all throughout the Gospels, right? Person after person sees Jesus face to face, hears him preach. It can almost be discouraging. You're like, if they rejected Jesus, how am I going to evangelize better than Jesus? course it's because we needed the spirit and we needed the cross and we needed the resurrection but many saw Jesus physically and were blind to his identity they needed spiritual eyes to see him for who he truly was they needed to be born again John 1 9 speaks of the the true light before moving down into John 1 12 to 13 talking about who the chosen people of God are he says but all who received him being Jesus who believed in his name He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? Of God. And I think that when we see of God, sometimes he's reminding us of, of this, born of God. And in John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Jew, a Pharisee who comes to him in the middle of the night. And he says, how can I get into the kingdom of God? You seem to know the, you seem to know the way. What, what is it? And, and he says, you need to be born again of the Holy Spirit to receive the kingdom of God. And you'll remember Nicodemus thought this was nuts. He was like, are you telling me I need to jump back in my mom? That is gross on 12 levels. He says, no. Like, I'm talking about the nature of what? Regeneration and new birth and being born again. Spiritual life that's coming to you is a foreshadowing of first fruits of the new creation that I'm ushering in. And remember John 8 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Now, the reason why you don't hear them, he says, is that you're not what? Of God. In other words, Jesus is the light and the life for those who believe. He gives new life that is moral transformation now. And eternal duration. In other words, this light lasts forever. But just consider the way that Jesus unpacks this in chapter 9. There Jesus gives a sign with this, this truth, this reality that he is the light of the world. And Jesus gives this man in verse 7 physical sight. You might have noticed that. He's teaching, I am the light. Hey, here's a blind dude who's never seen anything in his life. He's been in utter darkness. I'm going to turn the lights on. He turns the lights on. But it's only in 935 that he comes to believe in a saving way. To have new life when Jesus tells him that he is the son 
of man. I love this image, right? I'm the son of man. That's who I am. He's like, oh, I just thought you gave people like sight that were blind forever. That's cool. Son of man, Daniel 7. Remember this? The image of one like the son of God, that's, or son of man, that's coming down. What's he riding? A cloud car. A cloud throne descending from heaven. And this man's on top of it. See, that figure from Daniel 9, 7 is showing one like the Son of Man who is descending from heaven, coming from the Father with a divine kind of authority. But it took hearing the voice of Christ speaking about himself for this blind man to receive spiritual sight. The light that goes to the soul. So how do we apply this? We've got a few ways. First, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. If you're a believer, I, I want you to, to keep on your mind constantly the nature of what God has done, this great light in Christ. First Peter 2.9 tells us that we need to celebrate this greater light, Jesus Christ. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of who? Him who called you out of darkness and into his what? Marvelous light. Now, I don't think marvelous is a word that he intended to leave out. I don't think it's accidental. I don't think he was like, I just need an adjective to describe light. We'll go with marvelous. No, he's talking about the glorious nature, the miraculous nature of what God has done in Christ, in us, as a people who were no people to become a people, the very people of God. Don't forget that. And if you're sad and discouraged and depressed, be reminded of what Christ has done as a great light in making you one of the lightlings of God. Second, don't, don't just not forget where you came from Remember who you are. You are the light. Run from darkness. Run from sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5 says this, For you are all children of the light, children of the day. And Jesus is our son. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So run from the darkness. It might promise you joy unhindered, but it will leave you in slavery and bondage. It leads to sin, death, and the devil. Third, your future is incredibly bright. Your future is incredibly bright. Your past, your new creation. Light, where there's darkness. Your present, your present is, I'm light. I'm running from darkness, I'm running to the light. Your future, incredibly bright. This is pale, this is dim in comparison to what awaits us. We've only seen in part what is to come. Revelation 22, one to five. Says then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Sound kind of familiar? Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life and its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. You see, a harvest has come in. And the leaves of the trees were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. The worship, they'll see him as he is, worthy of worship. And verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night, night will be no more. Does that mean you know, you're not going to be in the dark anymore? I don't know. There's no more night, there's no more darkness and what darkness represents. They, we are told, 
will need no light of lamp or of sun. You won't need the sun anymore. Why? For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Can't wait for that day. It's going to be lit like all the time. Let's pray.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello, listeners. This is Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. One of the greatest purposes of prayer is to tell our needs to God. Therefore, we say, God, please let this happen, or God, Please give us these things. When God listens and grants our prayers, when things happen according to our prayers, and our needs are filled according to our prayers, we give a prayer of thanksgiving to God. We say, Thank you, Lord, for listening to my prayer. This kind of prayer is the most basic prayer. However, what if God doesn't answer our prayers? We prayed, Please let this happen or please give me this, but it didn't happen. What kind of prayer do we give at this time? It is not difficult to give a prayer of thanksgiving when there are things to be thankful for. God listened to our prayers and answered. We feel God's presence and we are overjoyed. We give thanks to God and praise Him for listening and answering our prayers. The problem is when things don't go well according to our prayers. What kind of prayer should we give at that time? Our hearts are weary and our bodies struggle. We don't understand the situation we're in and fear sweeps over. Are we able to give a prayer of thanksgiving during this time? Looking at my experience and those around me, when our prayers are not answered and we experience hardship, most of us resent others, complain about the situation, or stop praying altogether. We say that we can't pray right now because we are distressed by the things we are experiencing. When things settle and get somewhat resolved and our heart is at peace once more, then we'll start praying again. I have seen church members who were so distressed that they stopped praying and left the church. Is that the right thing to do? What does God want us to do during these situations? I believe we could find the answer in David's prayer. As you well know, David was chosen by God and anointed as the king of Israel. However, he was also a person who experienced many sufferings in his life. After David defeated Goliath in the name of the God of the Israelite army, the Israelites sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Afterwards, Saul was jealous and was hostile towards David and thought David was after his position. Therefore, Saul tried to kill David. From then on, David ran away to avoid Saul. He spent a long time as a runaway from one place to another. 
The time he spent running away wasn't merely a month or two. It wasn't even a year. Scholars say that David continued to live a life of a runaway for almost 10 years. He didn't do anything wrong. He had faith in God and bravely fought for the name of God against the enemy who mocked God and gained victory for Israel. After then, a life of danger followed him for 10 years. While David was fleeing, there was a time when he escaped to the region of Gath in the land of the Philistines who were his enemies. David kept his identity hidden and entered that region. It's because the region of Gath was the hometown of Goliath whom he killed. The region of Gath considered David as an enemy. However, the people at that place recognized David, and eventually David was faced with danger as he stood before King Achish of Gath. David was afraid of being killed by King Achish, so he pretended to be insane before the Philistines. He drooled and let saliva run down his beard. He was acting like an insane person who wasn't of a right mind. He deceived them and barely managed to save his life. David's life was spared. How would he have felt? Did he think, Ah, I'm so glad I'm alive. I'm so smart. It's good that I pretended to be crazy. Or was he pessimistic and thought he had to act crazy just to prolong his life? Did he resent God by crying and shouting? Why are these things happening to me? It would be better to die. We'll find out through his prayer. This is Psalm chapter 56, verses 1 through 13. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my offerings of thanks to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David poured his heart out to God in his prayer. What do you think of his prayer? Did he seem pessimistic or resentful? David confessed everything to God. He told God about how his enemies treated him and what kind of situation he was in now. In the midst of this difficult situation, David confessed that he would trust the Lord and praise the Lord's word. He would only look to the Lord, who is his help. Verse 8 contains David's confession of faith towards the Lord. Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? David believed God knew his sadness and his tears. Because he had such faith, David trusted God, who knew his hardship and tears.
How far can we trust the Lord? Can we have faith in the Lord who knows everything about us? Can we tell Him everything and wait upon Him? God is our Father and He knows everything. God loved us enough to give us His Son. Those who realize this can call upon God as Father and pray. We can tell God everything and confess without hiding our emotions. God desires for us to pray honestly and confess open-heartedly. He desires to hear our confessions of trusting and depending on Him in any situation. Not only when we have something to be thankful for, but even in situations where it seems like we can't give thanks, when we have faith that God is our Father, we can pray while thanking Him. That is a prayer after God's own heart. This concludes today's edition of Prayers After God's Own Heart. Victory and see the. Blue. 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.